I'll be reading from Exodus chapter 24, verses 9 through 11. Then Moses went up with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel. And they saw the God of Israel, and under his feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire, as clear as the sky itself. Yet he did not stretch out his hand against the nobles of the sons of Israel, and they saw God, and they ate and drank. Thank you, John. Good morning to everyone. It's good to see everyone today. Special welcome to those who are, are visiting with us. We have brothers and sisters from other congregations who are here. We have friends who are here. We have Cassidy back with us from uh, Cement. Well, it is over, isn't it? She finally did decide to take all of her finals there at the end. She had a little bit of a little bump in the road. It's good to have Jesse with us as well. And uh, wonderful to be together to, to worship the Lord together this morning. Last week, John took us on an amazing, just an amazing adventure of sorts into the book of Job. And one of the things that happens in the book of Job is that Job wants an audience with God. Job wants to plead his case with God. He wants to see God. And of course, as you know, at the end of the story, he does. And he finds out what that might have been exactly what he was looking for. At the end, as we heard last week, Job said, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. I suppose we all want to see God. I mean, that is our eternal longing, isn't it? We want to see God. We want to be with God forever. We want to live in His presence. We want eternal fellowship with God. But somehow we know in the flesh, we're just not prepared for it right now. To see the living God now in our flesh, that is such an overwhelming thought. And we see that unfolding in Scripture so often. But at the same time, we're blessed to have these little windows in Scripture where we find people or angelic beings in the presence of God in various ways. John just read one of the most remarkable moments to me in the Old Testament. In Exodus 24, we studied it a few weeks ago, when Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel, entering into covenant, going up into the presence of God on behalf of the people, entering into a covenant with God, On that holy mountain, in the midst of the earthquake and the fire and the smoke, some in some way see the glory of God and eat and drink with Him the fellowship meal of the covenant. In Ezekiel chapters 1 and 2, I love the vision of Ezekiel of God. He, he, He sees, first of all, kind of this spiritual cosmic chariot of sorts that are that's made up of cherubim and, and these amazingly sort of gyroscopic wheels with eyes all around them. And it's just like this massive thing that just moves as it, as the Spirit of God indicates it. And above that is the glory of the Lord. And we see God moving here and there, unrestricted by any boundaries. The glory of the Lord. Or as Tim read to us a few moments ago from Revelation 4 and 5, where we hear those words around the throne of God in that amazing throne room scene of the book of Revelation. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Worthy is the Lamb to receive praise and glory and honor and blessing. There's worship in the presence of God. The other passage that comes to my mind is the call of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. Where Isaiah has his own vision of God, his own encounter 
with the living God. And as we look at that encounter this morning, I hope it will allow us to consider what it means for you and I to encounter God. And the kind of response that should come forth from our lives because we have encountered God. Let's look at this text together, beginning with the opening verses of the chapter. Isaiah's vision and Isaiah's call to prophecy, to be a prophet of Israel. And try to imagine, just try to imagine being there. Try to imagine being where Isaiah is, what he sees, what he hears, what he feels. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Above Him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two He covered His face, and with two He covered His feet, and with two He flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of Him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And in these verses we enter another realm. We we encounter sights and sounds that we don't see in this world. We enter into this realm and just are awestruck at what Isaiah beholds and through his revelation what we behold in this text. God is on His throne. God is reigning. God is king. We're told this is the year King Uzziah died. Uzziah reigned for over 50 years. A powerful king in the land of Judah. But the king is dead. And the Assyrians are on the rise. And Israel's facing a spiritual crisis. But what Isaiah has a vision of is God on the throne. God is reigning. God is the king. Not only in Judah. Not only in Jerusalem. God is the king of the universe. God is the sovereign over creation. God reigns here in His heavenly temple. And there are seraphim, these terrifying, awesome creatures. The word means fiery ones. And and in the artwork of the ancient Near East, they're often associated in in reliefs and so forth, and in artwork as, as these terrifying creatures patrolling around a monarch or a king of Egypt or Assyria or of whatever, guarding him and protecting him so no one can get to the king. But not in this vision. Not these seraphim. These seraphim are not there to protect the Lord. These seraphim protect themselves from the glory of the living God. With two of their wings they cover their faces. With two of their wings they cover their feet. And with two they fly. And they call back and forth one to another. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And their voices are so powerful that the foundations of the thresholds of the temple are shaking. The whole ground, the whole, the whole world of Isaiah is trembling. The house of the Lord is filled with smoke. These seraphim are crying out. And we imagine what that moment would be like. Could, can you enter into it in your imagination? Can you try to see it and hear it and feel it? To, to be in a, in a moment that so 
filled with power that your, your very body is going to be shaking and trembling just from the sounds reverberating around you, let alone the fact that you come into the very throne room of God. And, and we haven't quite been told this yet, but we understand where God must be enthroned because this is a, a temple vision. And where is God enthroned? In the temple, but above the cherubim. In the most holy place in the temple is the Ark of the Covenant. Above the Ark of the Covenant is the mercy seat, the cherubim, with their wings going from one side of the most holy place to the other, meeting in the middle. And there, in this vision, the glory of God is enthroned above the cherubim. God lifted up high and holy. And the train of His robe fills the temple. The train of a robe of a man written uh, uh, who was living at this time is not some like flowing train we think of like with a, a wedding dress or something. This is just the hem of a man's garment that fit tightly around his legs. And, and we're not supposed to imagine God being some big man in this, in this vision, but rather that this temple, which is the most magnificent place on earth to Israel, it cannot begin to hold the hem of the garment of this God who reveals Himself to His people. God transcends time and space. If God were, were dressed as a man, the hem of His garment can't be held by this temple. God is enthroned on high. The whole earth, the seraphim say, is full of His glory. And at this moment, Isaiah knows he's in trouble. He knows he's in trouble. He says, woe is me. This is the language of death. This is a man who says, I'm in the presence of the almighty, holy, transcendent God, creator, covenant God of Israel. Uh, and he, he knows where, that he has, no, he has no way to stay alive. There's no way for him to continue. And he confesses his sins. He confesses the sins of the nation. And yet he knows he's still going to die. He must die. How can the Holy One of Israel be open to such sinfulness in his own presence. And Isaiah cries out in, in, in mortal fear, knowing the end has come upon him. But his fear and dread and doom are swept away immediately by the grace of God. As we read in verse 6, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. And your sin atoned for. From the altar of incense, the angel flies with a coal. And Isaiah's mortal cry is responded to by the coal touching his lips, his sins being atoned for, him being forgiven. God in his grace providing the cleansing necessary, not just for Isaiah to live, to survive this moment, but also for Isaiah to remain in fellowship with God and to be there in his presence. And then God poses the question in verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. To the divine court, to the heavenly court, God poses a question. Who will go for us? Whom will I send? There's a task. God has a task. The task is unstated. But God has a task to be done. And Isaiah responds without hesitation, not even knowing what the task is. 
Here I am. Send me. He responds like this, of course, because of the vision, because he has just encountered and is in the process of encountering the living God, the glory of God, the grace of God. I mean, what else can you do? What else can Isaiah do at this moment but just say, God, my life is in your hands. I submit everything to you. Yeah, wh- whatever you want done, I'm, I'm here. You, I'm ready. Send me. And he, and he gives himself over to the task. He finds out in verses 9 through 13 that this is not a task he would have chosen. This would be, in fact, a task he would want to avoid. Because his task as a prophet is to preach to the people of Israel. But it will not lead to their repentance. The very fact that he preaches of the, of the God of Israel to them is going to further harden their hearts. And God lets them know up front, your ministry as a prophet is to go and to preach the truth to these people. But I know these people and they are not going to turn. Your preaching is just going to make them harder than they were before and I will have to bring punishment on them. That's not the kind, that's not the kind of job a preacher wants. That's not the kind of calling a prophet wants. There is hope in the end of his calling in verse 13 about a, a possible future, but that is the task that Isaiah receives. This is one of those passages, and I guess we all have them. This is one of those passages that years and years ago just captured my heart and my imagination. I can't remember exactly when it was when I first felt like I kind of saw this text like maybe it was supposed to be seen. But I remember it just kind of stopped me in my tracks because I thought, well, this is what it's like to encounter God. This is what it's like to step into the presence of God. And it's just such an overwhelming moment for Isaiah. And I know that we'll not have this experience. This is a singular experience of Isaiah to to have such a vision. And yet, we have an opportunity and a blessing through his experience to consider our own encounter with God and our own response to the encounter that we have with God. Because we do encounter him. And Isaiah shows us the way to respond to that encounter. Before we get to that, there's something else I just felt compelled to say. And that is the grace of the fact that God reveals himself to us. Just, I I mean, that's a whole other lesson and thought to consider today, but we'll just, let me just at least say, God reveals Himself to Isaiah. God reveals Himself to us. He doesn't have to do that. God doesn't have to show Himself to us. God doesn't have to tell us who He is. God doesn't have to relate to us in any way. He's the Creator, Sovereign of the universe. He can do as He pleases. And yet God chooses to. He's revealed Himself to you and me through creation. He's revealed Himself to us through His Word, which on every page tells us something about His nature and character and love and holiness and justice and righteousness and mercy. He reveals Himself to us in His Son, in the coming of Jesus Christ. We see God in the flesh. What a revelation. He does this not because He's compelled to. He does this because of His love. And He invites us. He doesn't just reveal Himself, but in so doing, invites us into relationship with Him, into covenant with Him. And that should just fill our hearts with gratitude. I mean, what's in this for Him? but dealing with a bunch of stubborn, sinful people created in his own image, but created for fellowship. 
And it says something about our purpose and the, and the love that God has for us and the worth that we have to Him. But the most obvious thing of all is that when you encounter God, the first thing you do, the most overwhelming thing you do, you must do, is worship. I'm using this image of these two little girls because sometimes there's such a purity in the hearts of kids when they come before God. They just know who God is. They just love Him. They trust Him. They want to sing to Him. They want to pray to Him. They want to worship Him. And that's, that's the first response. When you encounter the living God, you worship Him. The seraphim worship God. Isaiah worships God. Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and the elders of Israel, they worshiped God. The angels in heaven worship God. Anyone who comes into His presence worships Him. You're compelled to, aren't you? I mean, if you really encounter the living God, it's as if you are compelled to worship. It's the, it's the only possible response that we have. And we realize when we worship God. We know. We just instinctively know this. We have nothing adequate to offer. There's nothing I have that in any way corresponds to the greatness of God or what God deserves. Because God is above all. There's, there's nothing. There's nothing I have to offer Him. And yet He accepts our worship and loves loves to receive the worship and praise of His children. And if all, as we, as we think about our worship of the Lord, it's a reminder that worship isn't about me. Let me put it a little bit more directly. Worship isn't about you. You know it's not about me because you think it's about you, right? Uh, God is the audience of worship. We are not the audience. You are not an audience today. I'm not performing. This isn't a show. You're not the audience. Isn't it amazing how we can become the audience. I mean, you talk about one of the most idolatrous things that could possibly be for me to make myself the audience of worship. Well, let me see. Well, you know, that prayer, well, that song, well, you know, I wish you... I mean, isn't it amazing how we can, we can begin to consider worship for the, uh, on how well it does for me, on what it gives to me, on the experience that it gives to me, on the emotions that it stirs within me, as if I come, that we come here and we sit down and then we expect certain things to happen that people will do for us so that, it will, so that we will have a good worship experience. I want to have a good worship experience. I just don't know that that's the way that, that we find it. It isn't about that. Worship is falling down before the awesome God, offering up your heart, your life, your praise, your prayers, your cries for help, exalting His name. Compelled to because of who He is. Because when you encounter God, you worship God. And yet, don't we struggle sometimes? Don't we? I mean, just... We do, don't we? Honestly, we struggle sometimes with focus. We struggle sometimes with, with perspective. We lose sight of what's going on in our assemblies. We lose sight of God. And we may find ourselves at times just going through the motion. 
And if our worship becomes commonplace in that way, we need a vision of God. We need an encounter with God. I'm not saying we need some sort of miraculous supernatural thing to happen. I'm saying we need to spend time in our hearts and our minds opening up the Word of God, reading of God, seeing God in Scripture, taking time to reflect on who God is, meditating upon God, preparing on Sundays as we come together, preparing for worship, I wonder if we spend time preparing for coming into the presence of God as we do as a family, to prepare, to be praying about the assembly, to be thinking about our hearts, to be getting our minds ready to focus and to be joined with the the hearts of everyone else here to praise God, to attend. And I don't when I say attend here, I don't mean to be here. That kind of goes without saying. I'm saying for our minds and our hearts and our spirits while we are here to attend to God, to focus on God, to be riveted on Him, and to consider who He is while we're having the Lord's Supper, while we're singing, while we're praying, to see God seated on His throne, high and lifted up. This Almighty God who has revealed Himself to us and worship Him. Worship Him, whether it's here in the assembly or at home on our knees in prayer. To truly see God and to worship Him and to offer our best and to confess our love. And though I don't have anything that's adequate for that, God is our Father. And God receives our hearts and our worship to Him as pleasing and as glorifying, which is just another indication of His grace. Something else that happens in this text that's pretty obvious, of course, is realizing your need for cleansing. Isaiah certainly does. And when we behold the majesty and the holiness of God in our own lives, when, when in those moments we're so focused on God that we see Him as He is as best we can, that He is real to us, we know we're undone. Our best efforts fall short of the glory of God let alone our outright disobedience and at times propensity to sin. Apart from God's help, we're hopeless. It happens to me every Sunday I preach. But boy, does it really happen to me today. Because I'm thinking, who am I to stand up before other people and in any way think I can communicate the Word of God on behalf of God, can speak of His glory. Who am I? You don't know my sin. You don't know my failings. You don't know, not all of you, at least some of the struggles that I deal with in my life. And I think, what in the world are you doing up there talking about Isaiah 6 and the glory of God. And I'll tell you what, that's the situation for all of us except for this. That God has cleansed us. And that God has made us worthy. We are not worthy. We are not worthy to worship Him or to offer up our praise. We are not worthy to speak on behalf of God, His, His holy word, except by His calling and by His cleansing. 
And that's the love of God is so great. Jesus told Nicodemus that God loved the world to the point that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believed in Him wouldn't perish but have everlasting life. God doesn't want to condemn the world. God wants to save the world. God wants the world to be redeemed. God wants the world to be forgiven. God calls the world into fellowship with Him. And it's through His Son, Jesus Christ. And it's Jesus who brings about that cleansing by taking our sins upon Himself. As Peter says in 1 Peter 2, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree. Jesus took my sins, my imperfections, my rebellion, my disobedience. He took it upon Himself. On the cross, He bore it. He, he, he died under the burden of my sins and the burden of your sins. And Peter goes on to say He did that so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by His wounds you have been healed. By the suffering of Christ, by the blood of Christ, by the body nailed to the cross, you and I have been healed. That's why today we come together to eat And to drink the body, the blood of our Lord. It is our salvation. It is our cleansing. It is the only way that we can come into the presence of God. And we have been healed. Just as Isaiah cries out to God and is cleansed, you and I have cried out to God. And God responded with nothing less than the precious blood of His Son. What grace, what mercy God has to cleanse us to bring about our forgiveness as we put our trust in the blood of Jesus Christ and His crucifixion. As Peter said to the the folks on Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He was saying it's time for them now that they know who Jesus is. You need to change your life. You need to change your mind about Christ. You need to turn away from disbelief and turn away from sin and be baptized into Christ and and be forgiven of sin and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit so that you're born again. You're regenerated. You're cleansed. Dying with Jesus. Raised with Jesus. New life in Christ. Praise God today. That we can come into His presence, and the reason we can come into God's presence today is because we have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And if you have not been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ, we plead with you, we encourage you to be so cleansed by the blood of Christ that you may know this kind of relationship with God. Because it goes even beyond that cleansing to the beautiful promise in 1 John 1, 7. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of His Son, Jesus, cleanses us from all of our sins. God cleanses us continually. And when you encounter this holy, righteous God and you recognize your own sinfulness and need for cleansing, God in His grace responds to us. With Jesus Christ crucified and raised. And the blood that brings about forgiveness. The last thing that happens in this text, as far as Isaiah is concerned, as he encounters God, is how he devotes his life to God, serving God and answering the call. The question, whom shall I send and whom will go for us, is answered immediately by Isaiah. Here am I. 
send me. Is it any wonder? Can you just for a moment turn on that imagination here and think about standing there and seeing these seraphim flying and hearing them, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Hear that. Hear it going back and forth because they're calling back and forth to one another. It's not stopping. It's going back and forth. It's so loud that the ground under your feet is trembling. The 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 whole place, the whole temple is filling with smoke. You, in, in, the, in your vision, in your eye, you see some little train of a robe. But there's the glory of God enthroned above the cherubim. And He says, Whom shall I send? Tell me you could stand there and shrug your shoulders and say, Oh boy, I, I hope you find somebody. I really hope somebody shows... What are you going to do? You're going to say, Here I am, send me. I'm, what, how else do you respond? When you encounter the living God, that's how you respond. You don't say, well, you know, maybe one of these days, you know, we, the, the things that we come up with at times, uh, he just immediately, he immediately responds. But sometimes we do say no to God. Sometimes we do. Some of us have been sitting in church buildings for years. And after we leave on Sunday morning, that's pretty much the end of it till the next Sunday morning. I'm not saying we're not trying to be a good person in our life. But in terms of ministry, in terms of seeing our neighbor and sharing the gospel, in terms of fellowshipping with the body of Christ, that we can encourage others and, and be encouraged and be stronger to serve, in terms of accepting uh, any kind of, uh, of activity in ministry, any kind of role, we, we just don't do that. You need to encounter the living God. You need to encounter the living God. You need to see Him as He is. We all struggle at times, though, with saying no to God. We, 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 have some, we, we all know what we say. I think probably the biggest one is later. Later. Oh, yeah, you know, I'll do that later. I'll have more time later. I, I'll, let me just tell you, you will not have more time later. You won't. You, won't. you think you, you will not have time later. We always think we're going to have more time. Oh, the next, the next section of my life, I'm going to have more time. You probably won't. You probably, it just, that's, things get filled up. It's about what we commit to. We think somebody else is going to be able to do it. We, we, we just kind of kick the can down the road just a little bit. If you're asked to serve in a ministry or to prepare for a leadership role in the church, to take on a task that others in the church see you as being gifted for and qualified for. God's calling us to serve all the time. And I tell you, I've had my share of saying no. It's embarrassing uh, when I look back. I, I know I've probably shared all these before. The very first time I was asked to preach uh, in my home congregation, I was going to school to learn to be a preacher, and I told the elder, no. <laughs> uh, you know, a brother so-and-so is going to be gone uh, Sunday night in a month. Would you like to speak on... No. <laughs> I mean, nope. Well, uh, aren't you studying to be a preacher? <laughs> it's like, yeah, I'm studying to be a preacher. I'm not a... You know, it's like, nope. Oh, boy. I did go back to him later that evening and say yes, but mm, how many times I was asked to lead singing? Nope, not going to do that. You could get up in front of, oh yeah, sing in front of the whole church, sure. No, not about to happen. 
The most embarrassing of all was in 1974 when Ellen and I had gone up to Petaluma to look at the possibility of working with that congregation. I preached that Sunday morning. We loved that church. And we're on our way after lunch to a convalescent home. And the guy driving the car, I think it was probably Truman, said, Hey, uh, we're going to this convalescent home. Why don't you uh, just give a little Devo talk? I said, uh, No. <laughs> About that time, I felt this incredibly sharp elbow in my ribs. Um, because sometimes you encounter God like Isaiah, and sometimes you encounter God through the elbow of your wife. Uh, seriously. It's like, what kind of preacher are you? You to say no? So uh, we were getting out of the car. Oh, you know, I'll go ahead and I'll be glad to do that. But it's like, you know, I'd preached like six times in my life. I just didn't have a big backlog of stuff, you know. And so I was scared. And we get scared and we, fe- we say no. And we, are, we feel unqualified. And we say no. And, and, and we think somebody else can do a better job than we can. And so we say no. And I just want to encourage all of us. I'm not trying to put a a guilt trip on you that you have to say yes to every single thing. We've we've talked about there are times to say no. but, But at the same time, if we could see God in His glory, if we could see God in His majesty and power and sovereignty over our lives, and then look at our lives and the opportunities and the circumstances that open up before us, and, and just view what we're being called to do in connection with the holiness and the grace and the glory of God, we're going to be much more inclined to say yes because we know it's His call and He will empower us to do it. How is He calling me? How is He calling you? It's not going to be like Isaiah's amazing moment in his life. God's going to call you through people who come into your life who've never heard the good news of Jesus Christ and you're the one who can tell them. He's going to call you by the neighbor that is in, in need of somebody giving them some support and help because they've just lost a spouse. Or they're going through a difficult time in their family. He's, he's going to call because someone in the congregation is going to say, we really need some help here. We really think you're able to do that. Can you help us? It's, God's, God's going to be calling us. What does He want me to do? I'd like you to think about that. What does God want me to do? How is He calling me? You know, I've just been noticing lately I'm nearly 70. I can, that's, you can't believe that, can you? I look, what, 40? Plus 28. God is. God continues to call me to do things that I don't expect. You learn from Isaiah that God will sometimes call you to do the very thing you would like to avoid more than anything else. Because God may call you to be an example of suffering. to show His grace in your life to people who watch as you suffer. We have all kinds of ways that God calls us. We don't always want them. We don't always like them. And I'm finding, even at this point in my life, in the last couple of months, things that God is, I feel, calling me to do through the circumstances, through the opportunities, through the need, and it's not something I feel terribly gifted at, but I sure feel singled out by him. Not not talking about the pressure of others. 
Who do you know that needs to hear about Jesus? Who do you know that needs someone to supply emotional support? That's where God's calling you. It's not magical. You don't need to go home and pray for some kind of revelation. It's right there in front of all of us, the opportunities that God gives. And when we've seen the living God, we say yes. We say yes. We don't make excuses. We don't turn a deaf ear. We all need to continue to encounter the living God. We do that in His Word. His Word is just such a blessing to us. Spending time in the Word, contemplating the Word, praying through the words of Scripture, coming to know God as He reveals Himself in the Word, reflecting on it, having quiet time, having conversations with God. Not just the moments when we get down on our knees and pray, but talking with God in the course of the day. Talking with Him as the one who is there, who is always with you. Building that relationship, encountering the living God in the ordinary moments of your life. And we just see more and more His grace, His mercy, His sovereignty, His power. And hopefully we respond, as Isaiah did so long ago, with worship. With accepting the cleansing that He offers and living in it and desiring to be holy as He is, and serving, that we might bring honor and glory to Him and do His will. If you need cleansing today, recognize the fact that Christ has done it. The work is done. Your sins have already been carried by Jesus Christ in His body on the cross. His blood was shed for you then. His wounds then heal you now. And if you believe He is the Son of God, then turn your life to Him. Confess Him. Put your trust in that blood. Believe that that blood, that that sacrifice, is the very power to reconcile your relationship with your God and Creator. And be baptized into Jesus Christ to die with Him and to rise with Him to receive the Spirit of God, to be forgiven of sin. That's how you can encounter God today in such a real, powerful way. And for those of us who have been cleansed, let's consider our heart of worship. Let's consider where our minds are as we worship, whether it's here or in our homes or in our, in our own private prayer life. Let's take a look into our own hearts and how we're responding to the opportunities that God gives us. And let us always behold the image of God because it will drive us to our knees in worship and praise but then lift us up with the power and the conviction to serve. If you need to respond to the almighty, awesome, righteous, gracious Father and His Son Jesus Christ, come as we stand, as we sing.